Unfucking the Republic is brought to you by Sam C., Cringy, Cindy S., and welcoming our new Unfucking Insane Level member, Corey S. Well, we made it, Unfuckers. It's the last show of 2021, and we're ready to kiss this year goodbye, and I'm sure you are as well. We're taking a short break for the new year, so the next episode will drop on January 8th of 2022, assuming no war with China, another capital insurrection, or Max being disappeared by the CIA or something. I'm sure we'll say it again in show notes, but on behalf of our little unfucking team, we wanted to thank you for an extraordinary year. We're finishing with almost 450,000 downloads, have welcomed new followers from around the globe to the pod, and launched a successful coffee partnership with the Unkachog Nation. You helped the Mohawk community in upstate New York exceed their winter heating fundraising goal. Just over a thousand of you became subfuckers. And of course, you helped me prevail in the fight against the name Uncluckers. We have some cool stuff planned for next year, so everyone stay healthy over the break. And without further ado, we present a holiday quickie highlighting three positive trends and some thoughts on how the manch stole Christmas for your unfucking enjoyment. Hopefully, it will tide you over to the new year. When the world is a mean and nasty little place, finding the truth can be a little tricky. Don't go punch yourself in the face, just listen to an unfucking quickie. "'Twas the night before Christmas, when all through the house, not a Cretan was stirring, not even Matt Gates. Uh, the missiles were placed in the silos with care, in the hopes that China would also prepare. The senators were on recess, all snug in their beds, while visions of donations danced in their heads. And Manchin on his big yacht took a big crap on the poor and the sick, like Thanos's snap. When on the White House lawn there arose such a clatter, Mamala sprang from her bed to see what was the matter. Away to the window she flew like a flash, flipped off the haters and threw up the sash. Biden had wandered out into the snow, hey. looking for Corn Pop, the only black guy he knows. When what to her wondering eyes did appear but Air Force One and eight GOP profiteers. A tiny hand driver so fucked up and sick, she knew in a moment it was that fucking orange prick. More rapid than COVID, these douchebags they came, and he whistled and shouted and called them by name. Now Marjorie, now Butthead, uh. now Bobert, now Kevin, Jim Jordan, on Crenshaw, Gomert, and Zeldon. To the Capitol steps and over the wall, overthrow, overthrow, overthrow them all. Cotton and Holly will meet us inside to recreate the day that democracy died. So up to the Capitol, the traitors they flew, with a sleigh full of coal and Uncle Fartnoggin too. Just then, in a tinkling, they pissed on the roof. The laughing and giggling was even more proof. They despised the country and all those around. Down the chimney, Orange Von Fucknugget came with a bound. He was dressed like a fuckboy from his head to his feet, looking for Proud Boys and McDonald's to eat. A bundle of lawsuits he had flung on his back, and he looked like a felon who was under attack. His eyes, how they squinted, his diaper, how merry, his cheeks were like Cheetos, his dick like a cherry, his mouth like an asshole drawn up like a bow, and Sean Hannity shoved far up his asshole. The crumbs of a Big Mac stuck in his teeth with that stupid toupee on his head like a wreath. 
his fat fucking face and a giant round belly that shook while he laughed, except he never laughs because he's a literal fucking psychopath incapable of experiencing joy or laughter. So we're just giving up on the whole rhyme and meter thing, huh? And jamming a finger way up his nose and giving a nod up the chimney he rose, he sprang to his airplane, let out a dog whistle, and blew out his mouth the last of the gristle. But I heard him exclaim ere he flew out of sight, Fake news, rigged elections, and to all a good night. So originally I'd planned to end the year on a positive note. A quickie that highlighted three positive developments in 2021 that are real. Very real accomplishments or trends that signal a shift in the United States. We're still going to highlight them today, but as of this moment, most of the focus in Washington is on the power wielded by one man. A wolf in sheep's clothing. The coal mining, backstabbing millionaire from West Virginia who went back on his word and fucked a nation in what can only be considered an attempt to preserve his own net worth. The Manch Who Stole Christmas. So if you want to end the year on an unfucking positive note, you can skip over the back half of the quickie when we dissect the DOA Build Back Better initiative and offer some advice to the progressives on how they can pick up the pieces. And I do mean pieces. More on that toward the end. So let's start with some good news. For the most part, I've been pretty negative toward the Biden administration for its handling of the economy, increasing the already bloated military budget, and its inability to herd the cats in the Democratic caucus. And with good reason. The first year of the new administration tends to be the most significant legislative period, especially in the modern era. So understanding that while Biden hardly came in with a mandate, he did win the election, Democrats retained full control of the House, and they had a fighting chance in the Senate with VP Harris being able to break any ties. But after the first year, posturing begins for the midterms and assholes throughout the beltway tighten when new legislation is dropped at their feet. So it's pretty likely that the victories that have been achieved with the first Biden stimulus and the it's fucked for sure bill are all that can be expected. The opportunity to close out the year with a victory lap with the signing of Build Back Better were dashed and 535 fuckheads will return to their districts for the holidays. Nevertheless, there are some positive signs beginning with our unbridled militarism. I am now convinced that as many as 10 civilians, including up to seven children, were tragically killed in that strike. Moreover, we now assess that it is unlikely that the vehicle and those who died were associated with ISIS-K or were a direct threat to U.S. forces. I offer my profound condolences to the family and friends of those who were killed. That's General McKenzie of the U.S. Central Command admitting to and offering an apology for a drone strike in Afghanistan that killed innocent civilians. While it cannot ever undo the horror of this event, nor the countless strikes that murdered innocent civilians at American hands over the past 20 years, it marks an enormous shift in tone and responsibility on the part of the U.S. military. Upon taking office, Biden quietly signaled a shift in policy by taking back the power to authorize drone strikes. Now, prior to this procedural move, the military essentially had carte blanche to order strikes, oftentimes with devastating consequences, and in parts of the world where we aren't even formally engaged in active warfare. Not that this should even matter. The fact is that drones are indiscriminate and should be outlawed based on the flawed and brutal nature of the strikes. But by taking back the ability to authorize such campaigns, Biden gave the White House exclusive oversight. This didn't go unnoticed even just weeks into his administration as drone strikes, once a casual and routine part of American terrorism in Africa and the Middle East, suddenly came to a halt. 
It also had the effect of putting far greater media attention on them when they did happen, with the strike in Kabul revealing the utter brutality and wanton nature of this kind of assassination. The fact that the military was compelled to offer an apology is stunning, even if it shouldn't be. The caveat that must be mentioned here is that other than the authorization for strikes changing hands, nothing else has changed with respect to the policy. The military not only said there will be no retribution for murdering 10 civilians, seven of whom were children, they also haven't taken drone warfare off the table. Now, as we covered in our militarization episode, these strikes should be considered acts of war, authorized only by Congress and extremely limited in scope when the homeland is under a clear and present threat. It's illegal under every international code and law there is, but no one has the ability to take us to task for our indiscriminate assassinations that have taken place in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Libya, Somalia, Yemen, and Pakistan. Afghanistan, Libya, Pakistan, Syria, Yemen, Somalia, Iraq. Parents and child made to fight the same fight, and we don't know when they're coming back. This war's not won, cause this war's never done. That's another clip from Manny Faces production Newsbeat that covers the authorization for use of military force, or the AUMF. It speaks to the insanity of a policy that would allow us to literally bomb anyone we consider a terrorist anywhere in the world. We'll put a link to the full episode in show notes. And it just goes to how far we've come since instituting the Bush Doctrine. Children in Afghanistan would celebrate on cloudy days and emerge from their homes because they knew the drones weren't flying. I mean, that is criminally fucking insane. So the fact that we haven't walked back this method of war entirely leaves it open for other presidents to use or simply hand back to the military. And as the military reporter Spencer Ackerman notes, the fact that we haven't used drones in a year kind of blows that whole we're keeping the homeland safe theory behind the use of unmanned aerial vehicles. I'm linking an Intercept article from Jeremy Scahill, whom I consider to be the foremost authority on our militarism from Bush until now. And in it, he says, quote, The handling of the Kabul drone strike is an ominous sign that while Biden has pledged to review the efficacy and impact of drone strikes, a longstanding mechanism for self-exoneration remains entrenched, end quote. And that's the real danger. But as I mentioned, I'm trying to stay positive. So here's the upshot on this topic. For the first time in 20 years, children in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Libya, Somalia, Yemen, and Pakistan can play outside on sunny days without fear of being murdered from the sky. But as of last week, President Biden has actually nominated more people for the federal bench than President Trump did during his first year in office. So that was pencil head Trey Gowdy on Fox, who goes on to talk about how unfair it is that Biden is appointing so many federal judges to the bench. And oh boy, has he ever. 538 has done a pretty good job breaking this down, along with Brookings, to provide some historical context about these appointments. Of course, we're a long way from undoing Trump's stacking, especially on the lower courts in red states, but it's a hell of a start. And while we're at it, let's check in to see how things are going in the Trump court system. You're out of order! You're out of order. The whole trial is out of order. They're out of order. Well, that seems about right. 
Anyway, according to 538 and Brookings, Biden has, quote, more nominees at this point in his term than any president since George W. Bush, the highest share of confirmed nominees than any president since Bill Clinton, and the most appointments since Ronald Reagan. So that's good news in terms of restoring some balance of power between the parties and the judicial system, though it should be noted that the net difference isn't all that impressive in sheer numbers. Most of these appointments are happening in blue states as Democratic judges clear the way for younger blood. Do you hear me up there, RBG? The real impressive thing is Biden's commitment to diversifying the courts. Dig this. 71% of the successful appointments thus far are non-white and the overwhelming majority, 75%, are women, far outstripping previous presidents, including his Democratic predecessors on both metrics, according to 538. So these gains are likely to slow down if the midterms shape up as dismal as everyone expects, especially if the Republicans take back the Senate. Then we'll be back to the stalemates and vacancies, and if someone in the high court should kick the bucket prematurely, <coughs> Clarence Thomas, I'm sure that old turtlefuck McConnell will invent some reason to wait until the next presidential election to nominate a Supreme Court justice. In the meantime, we'll take little victories where we can, especially if it means more black and brown faces in charge of the criminal justice system. Yeah, you mean like <coughs> Clarence Thomas? Ah, well played, Manny. Well played. The defense is wrong. Part of the American Rescue Plan was a shift in the way that the government handles tax credits for children and families that live under a certain threshold. It changed the tax credit, which had a cap of $2,000 per year, to a monthly payment of up to $3,000 a year for eligible families. The success of this program was more in the switch from credit to payment than it was in lifting the cap. And how successful was it this past year? So it's credited for helping reduce child poverty in the U.S. by 40 percent. Uh, and should it go away, those uh, benefits would be reversed and nearly 10 million children could go back into poverty. Unfortunately, Joe Manchin literally told Democratic caucus members that it was too tempting for families to spend this money on drugs, despite there being literally zero evidence that this was the case. Common Dreams reported that according to the Social Policy Institute at Washington University in St. Louis, among Manchin's constituents in West Virginia who received the CTC, more than half used the payments to buy groceries. 39% said some of the payments were buying clothing. 38% said they used them to pay essential bills, and more than a quarter reported using the CTC to help with rent or mortgage payments. The Social Policy Institute found similar results in other states, with about half of recipients nationwide reporting that they mainly use the payments to buy food. Food. Not drugs. Food. And that goes for the people in his state. But we're going to open up his asshole in a minute. What I want to focus on right now is the poverty reduction aspect of this issue. You see, when people who don't earn enough to even pay income taxes receive a tax credit, it's essentially moot. So when you just open the wallet and pay people in poverty directly, they do things like buy clothing and food. And statistically, at least, it lifts them out of poverty. Children, when they're not at school, have something to eat. So apart from the fact that Joe Manchin has zero fucks to give about the people of West Virginia or anyone else in the country who lives below a certain income level, this is obviously not what we're celebrating here. What should be celebrated is that this bill, this one simple shift in how we allocate funds to the poor, has delivered the proof that policy wonks and social theorists have long contended. 
that direct payments lift people out of abject poverty and are used for positive social impact items like food, shelter, and clothing. These are the things that reduce childhood obesity and cognitive issues that arise from being malnourished, things that become very expensive for society to absorb later in life. These are the things that provide dignity to people and give them a shot to perform in the world. This one program proved the concept and gave us a roadmap to alleviating, if not ending, poverty in our nation. It's big and it should be celebrated. Now, let's rip off Mansion's head and shit down his neck for a bit before we head out for the holidays. UNFTR! I was raised with an awful lot of faith in God. That's a quote from Joe Manchin's website. Lots of faith in God. A good Christian man. Went to church all his life. Raised with an awful lot of faith in God. I've often wondered about pious fucks like Joe Manchin who quote from the Bible while taking away from the poor. He's not the first. Hell, he's not even the worst of them. And he won't be the last. But still, they make me wonder. Now, I've watched the interviews, the ones where he said that he just couldn't get there, despite the president acting in good faith and promising the members of his caucus that a form of Build Back Better would pass if they just uncoupled the infrastructure bill from it. He promised, like a good Christian man from the South. Joe Manchin claims that he couldn't in good conscience add to the federal deficit, using fraudulent CBO estimates from the GOP that included provisions that were already dead, carried out one-year plans for the entire 10 years despite the bill not calling for that, and it eliminated revenue offset projections from increased IRS enforcement of tax collections and other offsets. But Joe Manchin knows that most of the country won't understand that his claim is based on a lie. We do because we do the work, but most people don't. Joe Manchin claims that all of this reckless spending is what caused inflation, but we know better. As we proved in our Kellogg's example last week, inflation is being caused by corporate greed, with companies raising their prices ahead of any perceived supply chain issues. Anti-poverty initiatives like child tax credit payments don't increase inflation. Corporations taking record profits and pouring them into stock buybacks only to raise prices to increase their margins? That's what causes inflation. Because we know that if reckless spending was the cause of higher consumer prices, then our multi-trillion dollar wars would have already done that. New housing costs might be impacted by swings in the prices of raw materials, but that doesn't account for rents of existing properties. That's greed. Using the actual CBO estimates, the worst case scenario would be $500 billion in additional expenses that aren't offset by revenues, but that's only after Kirsten Sinema declared that she would never vote for a billionaire tax. Of course, it was ignored completely that when the CBO extended the outlook by another 10 years, these increases were actually budget neutral. Forget that the percentage of interest on the national debt to GDP with this plan was still projected to be less than it was under Reagan, and even when adjusted for inflation. They know these particulars are lost on the average person who only sees that these lawmakers are holding themselves out as responsible parties, despite voting for a $780 billion military budget. So we're all clear, let's look at what this bill did. It provided incentives for residential and commercial solar to help Americans save on energy and to hit our carbon reduction goals by 2050. It would have put 300,000 unemployed Americans to work in temporary climate core jobs. 
Recall from our MMT episode that Argentina launched a similar initiative that put unemployed people to work in a federally funded, locally administered jobs program starting in 2001. As economist Stephanie Kelton writes, quote, at its peak, the program employed some 2 million people, about 13% of the labor force. Almost 90% of those jobs were in community projects and 75% of the participants were women. Just six months after launching the program, extreme poverty had fallen by 25%. Within three years, half of the participants had left the program, most for jobs in the private sector, end quote. So these type of programs, to the point, they actually work. It provided for universal pre-K, a one-year extension of the child tax credit payments. Not 10, just one. It included paid family leave, like every other industrialized country on the planet. It expanded Medicare to protect the elderly and put restrictions on prescription drug price increases. It offered funds for affordable in-home care for our aging population. It extended Pell Grants and other education provisions that largely benefit communities of color. This was the social infrastructure bill that was to be paired with the physical infrastructure bill and, in fact, holds several funding provisions that pay for promises made in the physical bill with respect to climate change. So now those will have to either change or come off the table, thereby reducing the positive effect of the It's Fuck For Sure bill. The ultimate reason that Joe Manchin killed this bill is because, his words, not mine, it would have transitioned our economy to a green economy too quickly. But even his home state coal unions are pissed at him because it also included provisions to retrain coal miners and offered incentives to clean energy corporations to set routes in states that would be most impacted, like his, by a shift away from coal and dirty fossil fuels. So really, Manchin did this to protect his own business interests. Or perhaps he did it to set the table to flip parties and run for president, as some have speculated. These are really the only options that you can come up with because none of these other things, which he knows they've been explained to him, this is what the Progressive Caucus has been talking about the entire time, this information is there. He gets it. He just voted against it because he has some ulterior motive. Does he want to be the fucking president? Does he want to flip parties and become a Republican to guarantee that they have control of the Senate? Who the fuck knows? All we know is that this one guy, this one motherfucker, fucked the whole country. Just him. And they didn't even have the fucking courage to bring it to a vote so that he could stand up there and cast his no vote in front of the nation. But here's the thing. I don't blame Joe Manchin. He's a shill. He's a fucking asshole. I blame Pelosi. I blame Chuck Schumer. I blame the Problem Solvers Caucus. Every Democrat who actually believed this piece of shit and forced the Progressive Caucus to back off and uncouple the bill because Manchin promised them he would work with them to pass something big, even if it wasn't the whole thing. Instead, he revealed his true colors, went on Fox News of all places, and single-handedly declared to the country that poor people are not deserving of our love and attention. Just one giant fuck you. And they let him have the stage. All that free press and the entire right-wing media establishment praising this guy for doing the right thing. If the Democrats were serious about any or all of these crucial provisions, they would break them up into smaller bills and month after month, force these motherfuckers to take a vote. Biden's got to stop trying to pass huge pieces of legislation like he has some clear mandate or like he's LBJ or FDR. The only thing that he has in common with these famous acronym Democrats is that half the country calls him FJB. And that's when they're not calling him Brandon. 
You're not LBJ or FDR or JFK. You're just Brandon. And half the country thinks you're a fucking joke. A quarter knows that you're not up to the task. And the other quarter puts you there because they were afraid of Professor Orange Von Fucknugget having another four years to pound America straight in the ass. It's time to hire a marketing team over at the fucking DNC. Build Back Better with a multi-trillion dollar price tag makes people nervous. And it makes it really easy to kill. After the It's Fucked For Sure bill was passed, they should have come out with five specific bills and dedicated one month to each provision. Make a huge splash of the thing and then bring each one to a fucking vote and say, we can't move on to the next one until you pass this one. Make these assholes cast their votes against these bills. And here's an idea. Do what the Republicans do. Give them a snappy patriotic title. At the end of every month, you can call a fucking vote and make these people stand up to it because it's easier to understand. And if they do vote against it, you can put these patriotic sounding bills on titles in the mail and send it to their districts and be like, look, so-and-so voted against the No Children Starve in America Act. And on that note, 99, let's list out the acts that should be taking place if this administration was fucking serious about changing the country. Month one, the No Children Starve in America Act. Extend the child tax credit and offer universal pre-K with school meals to continue lifting children out of poverty. I dare you to vote against that. Month two, the Greatest Generation Protection Act. Extend Medicare, cover in-home nursing, and limit prescription drug price increases. I double dare you. Month three, Beat China to Net Zero Act. Climate economy provisions that beat those commie fuckers to net zero so we can outlive them and be number one. And fuck the civilian corps, by the way. Americans don't want more government employees. But what you can do is put a provision in that any company that sets roots in coal country to build a zero emission plant pays no taxes for 10 years so long as they're union. Month four, protect new American babies. Are the right to lifers really going to stand in the way of paid family leave when we point out that it could be the difference between abortions and having babies? I triple dog dare you! Month five, make America smart again. Higher Pell Grants, Free State College. Oh, and here's something the administration could just do. They don't even need legislation. Knock 10 grand off all outstanding federal student loans like Biden fucking promised he would and refinance the balance of student debt at the same fucking rate that you give the big banks. The difference in what you save from defaults would completely offset losses and in interest payments on the debt. Problem fucking solved. Five months, five bills, wrapped in the flag and shoved down the throats of the oligarchs that truly control this nation. Here endeth the lesson. Here endeth the year. And I'll see you in 2022. Hey, welcome to Show Notes, everybody. How you doing, 99? That's a loaded question. I got my booster. I'm proud of you. My head is pounding. I'm sorry. Don't be sorry. I'm bulletproof now. Sure. Literally nothing can kill me. <laughs> okay. That's not true. No, that's what the lady said. Well, she's should be fired. <laughs> I mean, uh, that's just dangerous. So everybody knows, you know, we're in New York. It is December 2021. And this is, once again... 
this is just the eye of the storm. Like we are the center of it all happening right now. So that's fun. Hoping that we don't go back into some sort of lockdown situation for a little while. Although it seems slightly inevitable. Travel plans being canceled, holidays, all that kind of nonsense. But fucking boosted. You're boosted, right? Oh, I was there the day it opened. (laughs) I said, hello, I'm here. I want number four. Number four? I want number five. Oh. I was telling our mutual coworker earlier that I would gladly be the guinea pig if they wanted to give me one every day. Every day. If they put me in a room Mm -hmm. and they were like, all right, you're going to be in here. Like, here's TV. Here's whatever books you want. Uh, A microphone, I guess, to record. (laughs) A computer. You know, like the usual things. Sure. They can feed me. All of life's necessities. Yeah. In like a little padded cell. Yep. And they'd be like, we're going to, a lady in a hazmat suit is going to come and inject you every day with with the vaccine. And Mm -hmm. then we're going to like take your blood every now and again and look at it. I'd be like, sure, sign me up. Well, this, this, this. This went on quite the tangent. This this one, uh, you know. Well, you should have known. No, I know. You you know me. <laughs> I do. I do. Okay. But what the message is is everyone get vaccinated. If some for some reason you're not, if you're able to get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Right. And please get your boosters and convince others to get them. Because apparently, according to the White House, well, you're just resigning yourself to a winter of death, mayhem, and illness and destruction. Uh, and it's like, and Merry Christmas, everybody. So yeah. Uh, Biden wants you to get boosted. There you go. Anyway, what else is happening? Our episode caused the Kellogg strike to end. Oh, yeah. No, we did that. Yeah. Yeah, we definitely Causation is (laughs) correlation. Correlization. Yes, our correlization caused Yeah, uh, we did it. We did it. Yep. Yay for us. They actually got a really, uh, they basically just like said, yeah, the workers, from what I understand, really got everything that they were asking for, which um, which is inspiring. In 2022, by the way, we are coming back with a with a slew of big time episodes that we've promised everybody. So in no particular order, we've got our vegan episode, our plant fucker episode. We're going to be on fucking down under. Oh, uh, one on libertarians. I'm fascinated by the libertarian mind. So we're going to do that. We're going to unpack oil, unfuck oil, looking at immigration, Hollywood, big pharma, just so much more. I'm really excited for 2022. Big things on the board that I've wanted to get to for a long time. So when we come back after our little break and we get recharged, we'll uh, we'll start hitting it hard. That all sounds very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of books to read. Yeah, I can't wait. <laughs> I can't wait. I'll be locking myself in my own padded cell. Can we have adjoining padded cells? I would love that. Oh, my God. It'll be like we'll like have a phone and like a... Be like Travolta and Boy in the Bubble. Mm, yep. Yeah, totally like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly like that. All right. A movie I've seen hundreds of times. Oh, easily. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what do we got going on the uh, on the storefront? Yeah, so we announced a couple weeks ago our new blend and the whole beans. Unfortunately, obviously, we did not get that live in time for the holidays. Womp, womp. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of art things and companies closing because of the holidays and shipping. So we're sad about that, but we're excited to start fresh in the new year. So we have the Mellow Maynard blend, which is a medium roast. Mm-hmm. And then we have whole bean versions of that. Our decaf, our afternoon, our morning. What else? I know we had said if you had gotten coffee recently and maybe in the next couple of weeks they look a little different right now. They're in uh, some different interim packaging. So don't be alarmed. But we have brand new bags, some a little bit updated. That's all coming. And um, I think that's it. We have a surprise coming for our insane level members of the show, too. Oh, yes, we can't, do. Can't say much more about it, except that there's a... 
Netty tie-in. <laughs> yes. And to that note, on that note, we've been saying out of gamey wrong. It's out of gamey, not out of gami. Origami. Or our or origami. Oh my gosh. Oregon. So, so here's the deal. Just like it's it, it's not listen to the good folks of out of gamey. It's not going to happen. I'm not going to say it the right way. Just like I can't say Oregon the right way. And neither can 99 because we're from New York. It is what it is. It's it's Oregon. Oregon and it's out of Gammy. That's it. It's going to be out of Gammy County. All right. My suggestion is if we keep growing and this thing really becomes a thing and all of a sudden out of Gammy becomes like a huge tourist destination because people from all over just want to go and see Nettie protesting on the corner. You should just change the pronunciation of it. Like just just lean into it. Go with it. Anyway. So we had a lot of uh, a lot of activity. So we're going to close out with a little bit of longer show notes uh, at the end of the year because a lot of people wrote in to us. Beginning with our coffee donations, Rhonda K bought three coffees and sent us a holiday message. Mike L bought five coffees and said, "Not only is Mike a union member, but this is uh, Mike's favorite pod." Not too late, aka Big Sister and a Nurse Mary bought five coffees. Love the labor episode. Jonathan N. bought five coffees. Love the work. Dana bought 10 coffees and became a member. Just signed up for the monthly membership to throw a little more support behind our hard work. Thank you so much for doing that, Dana. And uh, as you heard at the top of the show, Corey S. didn't just become a member. Corey S. became an fucking insane level member of the show. Welcome aboard, Corey S. I do want to say real quick, Corey is our first dual member. Is that right? Yes. Corey was already a pro. Wow. And then he added an additional insane membership. Oh, so Corey's basically a shareholder at this point. <laughs> yes. It's incredible. We'll send him his certificate. That's awesome. So over on Facebook, the Anthropocene outbreak said, if I didn't know any better, I'd say our so-called leaders are just tired of humanity. That's fair. Nettie sent a link to the Urban Dictionary word of the day, which was shitheel. Wow, that's so weird. That's so cool. She said, Max, you are so fucking on time. We, yes, we used the word shitheel in the last episode and it popped up. That's cool. Jennifer S. said, I'm so excited to try Unfuck Your Morning Coffee. Well, we're excited for you to try it. Let us know how it was. And uh, Bob Knudsen said, Overall, enjoyed the show. To be clear, I was a bit surprised there was no mention of the wellspring for anti-collectivism known as Ayn Rand. All hail Nettie, rock on 99, rock on Manny Faces, and basic white guy respect head nod to you, good sir, Max. Yeah, I mean, well, Knudsen knows we dedicated an entire show called Ayn Rand Was a Dick, because she was. And yeah, it's amazing how her influence endures to this day with, you know, people in Congress still alluding to her and thinking that, you know, her framework for life is the only way forward if we're going to be, I don't know, just fuck Ayn Rand. And Jim M. said, great episode. Thanks. Thanks, Jim. Short and sweet. What's going on on the Twitters? Medic Mike 18B said the Kellogg strike ends the week after your show airs. Coincidence? I think not. That's right. I think we covered that. We yeah. pretty much did that. <laughs> and then Ken to kick it. Our friend Ken to kick it said, if you want to support the Kellogg strike workers, but aren't really sure how or the history of this particular strike and unions in general, check out this episode of UNFTR. Also call your congressman about HR 842 and uh, street rat punk, which I really liked that handle. They said unfucking the Republic is super entertaining. And then lastly, Amy Rangel said, oh, another good podcast is UNFTR. Well, thanks, Amy Rangel. Yeah. Well, over on Instagram, Starlotti said, love you guys more than ever. She appreciated the labor episode. Just Abe Lincoln, nobody else, just Abe Lincoln, said, Max's rant on Steve Kalane's utter psychobabble bullshit corporate speak is spot on. 
That was my favorite thing to put together, and I think we should do that more, translating what assholes are actually saying in the media. Joe Mischlugels... <laughs> Here we go again. Joe McLugelschmortz said, all these billionaires shit on their workers and I hate it so much. Yes. Astro Vandalism said, really like the episode on unions. You hit on a good point with worker apathy towards unions. The idea that we've already got everything we've needed. They serve their purpose. As a unionized civil servant working for the private drainage water utility in my city, I'm constantly surrounded by misrepresentation, lack of direction, and just plain incompetence from both union and company management. As always, messaging is the way forward. Wave those flags. Reclaim the title of patriotic left. Dig it. And at bed, Holla said, hell yeah. Can't wait to listen. And we got a lot of feedback on email in the contact form. What do we got first? Robert C. said, how can we say the Democratic Party controls Congress when it's obvious that they have such a narrow majority that it only takes a couple members breaking ranks to derail any progressive legislation? Yeah, I mean, it's in name only. It really is. Robert's premise behind his question is absolutely right. We really can't say it. I mean, we'd have to have such an overwhelming majority, especially since they're not willing to get rid of the filibuster and any of the other procedural hurdles that they've put in their own place. I think it's a completely fair question slash accusation. We're really not in con- They're really not in control. And that's why we keep advocating for more and more progressive candidates to overtake this and shift this entire unified left to the left. Robert used, I guess, our next hashtag, hashtag FJM. Yeah, fuck Joe Manchin is right. Well, it's official on fuckers, right? So we've got uh, F- FMF, FRR, FRM, FRM, FJM. Now FJM, certainly. There's some other ones that, you know, scoot in here or there, you know. FAR, fucking Ayn Rand. Yeah, Donald Trump. Yeah. You know what? Mitch McConnell. Yep, FMM. What were you going to say? You're going to say, Donald Trump? Yeah, I don't want to fuck Donald Trump. I'm ready for Trump to come back. Oh. He's the president we deserve. Um, now, we got a big one from Nathan S., but I actually want to do that one last. What else do we have here? Tim G. said, in the episode about unions, you asked for suggestions. I would love to see a federal law requiring all corporations to have co-determination structures. Hmm. Uh, so co-determination is essentially if I'm not mistaken, a formal process where workers elect a board of directors for companies of a particular size. This is a big Western European thing. And if you read um, or listen to uh, Rick Wolf on Economic Update or you've watched any of his lectures, he's a big proponent. He's more of a, actually a proponent of worker cooperatives, but he's also a proponent of having co-determination structures for companies like this. Cool suggestion, Tim G. Definitely something to look into, co-determination, if anybody's interested. And Alex P. emailed, said, this is the third time I've emailed you and your past two episodes have been almost direct answers to my previous emails. Thank you for listening and being so responsive to your audience. You are very welcome. Jacob W. said, just listen to the labor union episode. Great work, first of all, but I wanted to say how hard it is to even get in a union. Jacob works for a company which is owned by a really another really, really huge mm-hmm. corporate conglomerate food industry company. Uh, and a you, notoriously shitty fucking company. Yeah, by the way. yeah. And uh, Jacob says, if you ever, if you even bring up the word union, they find a way to fire you. Yeah, I mean that's the kind. That's why we need the pro act. We need that. I mean that type of behavior should be illegal. What's interesting about Jacob's company though is that it is. I don't know where it is domiciled. I'd have to look that up, Jacob. If you want to continue the dialogue, I'd love to know a little bit more about that because. I wonder if the corporate domicile means anything different when somebody tries to unionize. 
I don't I don't know if the corporate domicile dictates the regulations around organization at the worker level, although I imagine if there's domestic plants, even if the company is a multinational company somewhere else, that those plants would then be theoretically governed. So anyway, thank you for writing in, Jacob. And I think that that really goes to show how not far we've come since those early days when we were giving examples of like the Pullman strike and Carnegie Steel Company. Okay, so Nathan S., who's a a regular listener, uh, sends in a lot of great feedback all the time, a good friend of the show, sent in something that really kind of moved me because Nathan included a number of really strong observational points. And I want to kind of go through just sort of like a a top level hit list of them because it relates to the to the labor episode. Um, So I'll read, you know, certain sections of this. It's a very, very long email. I won't read the whole thing, but I'll read sections of it and then respond to them individually because I think the way that he packaged them was really, really thoughtful. So here's Nathan. First off, I'm an executive with a large Wall Street bank, so I hope you can read this in the spirit of meeting people where they are. Your podcast has helped me look at many things from a fresh perspective. I'm often torn in my own role there, as I know, as a firm, we encourage debt and consumerisms, two things I try to avoid in my own life. But our firm does many important things for our employees in terms of building a diverse culture, providing world-class benefits. I used to lean libertarian, but find myself becoming more progressive by the day, especially on Saturdays when I listen to your shows. So the framing here, the perspective is uh, one of the big banks. So where this is all heading is, you know, this is a company that we don't even breathe or speak of unions because the company does, does well by its people. And that is largely true in a lot of these big banks. It is also true that a company like HSBC is laying off 35,000 workers just because it's determined that certain business units no longer fit the profile of their model. It is also true that many of these banks have very poor governance in terms of the products that prey on many of the lower classes in this country. That debt profiles of, let's say, marginalized people, historically marginalized people in this country have been further propagated by some of the endemic policies at these banks It is also true that the banks themselves lobby for the very things that are preventing other companies from being able to organize. So even though there's nobody there that necessarily wants to organize, a lot of the big banks have the financial muscle to lobby Congress against things like the PRO Act. And so that's what I find problematic is their outsized influence. Yes, they take care of their people. I have a lot of friends. I have family members that are in banking and do extremely well and also kind of suffer from that feeling that I know I'm well taken care of and my company is doing really great things, but there's so much more we could be doing. And then some of them have these incredible philanthropic efforts, but a lot of it is still the money that's generated from preying upon the weakest members of society. And I have a feeling that if there was stricter oversight, a lot of these banks would make less money, but it would be appropriate for them to make less money because it would be not extracted with such punitive measures from the most marginalized people in our society. So I dig where you're going. I get it. But it's not always about what's happening within the structure of the bank, but it's also the leverage that the bank holds over the processes and mechanisms in Congress that prevent other companies from giving rights to workers. Anyway, let's go on here. Oh, and by the way, so this is exactly the argument that Jamie Dimon was making on Jon Stewart's podcast, the one that we had covered a little while ago, where Jon Stewart's like, you know, but you're so bad. And Jamie Dimon was like, I don't know, talk to my employees. My employees are really happy. My employees make a lot of money. 
They have incredible health care. And on all of those measures, he's exactly right. But the larger issue is how they're contributing to tearing apart the fabric of the rest of the system so that they can maintain their dominance within their own industry. Anyway, so let's go on. One of the issues that he has is self-accountability. This is a really strong point. And here I'm willing to definitely cede more ground. So self-accountability in a union, you have someone representing you, taking away the encouragement to push for your own self-accountability. So even at the peak of union membership in the country, it was, what did we say? 30% was the highest that it had ever been. Some countries have experienced much higher, but in this country, the highest was 30%. I don't think a union is appropriate for every industry, but insofar as there are industries where taking advantage of workers can lead to greater profits, we need to have protections put in place. Like Amazon facilities, for example, the incidence of injuries that occur in Amazon facilities across the world are so much higher than in most other comparable warehousing type facilities that it begs the question why we aren't doing more to protect those type of workers, particularly with the profits that a company like Amazon is able to produce quarter after quarter. So in those type of industries, I think it is mission critical that we begin to look out for the workers within these type of industries. But as we went from a manufacturing and industrial economy to a financial economy and now to a service economy, the need for unionization, because there's great competitiveness at the higher levels, isn't as dire as it used to be because there's not people that are putting their lives on the line on a day-to-day -day basis in their particular job. But I do think that workers in any company that is big enough should have the ability to even raise the question. So that's, again, that goes back to the PRO Act. That goes back to guaranteeing the protections of workers who are striking and workers who are desirous of joining a union. But I don't think that every company, every industry is ripe for being unionized at the same time. But remember, we're at 10%. So the ones that we're talking about are usually the people that work in, let's say, a Tyson chicken plant or work in an Amazon facility or work at some industrialized labor intensive plant that needs protections to literally save lives. We shouldn't have 16 hour shifts. That's just not healthy for Americans. Let's say truck drivers, long haul truck drivers. I know it's difficult to find drivers for that, but that doesn't mean that we break down the protections for the drivers who can fall asleep when they're trying to put back-to-back -to -back trips together because their bosses need to get freight from here to there. So there has to be a balance. We're way out of balance now, though, because the highest we ever performed as a nation on an income basis, on a poverty and an equality basis was when union membership was at its highest. And now the union membership is hovering around 10%. And most of those are service unions in places like New York and Illinois and California. So you're talking about cops, firefighters, teachers, healthcare workers. They make up the bulk of it. But what we've done is we've cast a lot of the workers aside that are in areas where they do not have a voice for themselves. So is it demotivating to be in a union? And Nathan's point here is, Nathan is a hard fucking worker. Nathan has worked his ass off since he's 13 years old. That's some of the context for the email and strives to get ahead. I think you should have the right to strive to get ahead within an organization that promotes that type of Calvinist work ethic. On the flip side of that, if you want to simply show up, do a job every day, 
earn a paycheck, come home because you are working to live, not living to work. You should also have the right to do that and be protected and be safe. Nathan goes on, the ability for an employer to reward top performers and not reward those that are as ambitious. Okay, your essay highlights the cases where employers take advantage of their employees and treat them poorly. You do not share the cases of employees not performing. This really strikes at the heart of of many unions where people begin to say that, you know, that old prevailing narrative of they've outlived their usefulness and it's not a meritocracy. So the low performers are basically covered by the high performers and you you can't fire terrible people. Yeah, people are people. There will be union members who suck. There will be assholes in union members. But again, what we're advocating for is worker protections and abuse. It's also not fun, just for what it's worth, to be the lowest performing union member in a union where others are looking at you and telling you that you're doing a bad job. What unions try to prevent is people being wantonly fired because a company makes a decision to change something to increase their profit margins. But people should also be fired when they put their coworkers in jeopardy or they just simply don't do the job. And a lot of times the unions will go too far to protect those type of people. None more so, by the way, than the fucking police unions. I mean, you can literally just straight up murder people and you don't lose your job. Sometimes you get put on desk duty and you don't lose pay. You'll be demoted, maybe. You want to talk about unions that are way too strong and protect the worst of us? Well, look at the police unions. But we're not saying here that, you know, we're going to go suddenly from 10% to 30% again and that all sorts of meritocracy are going to go away. What we are saying, though, is that there are many enterprises in this country that endanger the lives of workers. And there are many enterprises that influence the public sector, like bridges and roads and buildings and infrastructure that should probably be built union because you want people that have gone through hardcore apprenticeships and really know their craft and work eight hour days so that they're not exhausted. Those are the bridges that I want to travel on. Those are the elevators that I want to get into personally. So I think in in terms of the trades, I'd love to see a resurgence there. But in this new fulfillment and service culture, there's a lot of so-called essential workers, those heroes that deliver packages to you that are put in harm's way every single day. And I'd much rather see Amazon lose some profit and have those workers actually sleep, you know, like a full eight hours at night and be able to have a comfortable life and living rather than having to string together, you know, so many jobs. I just feel like I have to call attention to the not just the mistreatment, but the deaths that just happened there. So it's not even about quality of life. It's about life. How many people died? Over 11. And then they were blaming people. Because they were afraid to take off because the tornado was coming. No, they wouldn't They wouldn't let them go home. Right. Bo- I mean, both. Right. It's insanity. Yeah. Their treatment is so poor. It's sick. Yeah. And, you know, the larger point that Nathan is getting at is like, he wants to work his ass off because that's who he is and that's what he's used to. And he wants to be able to earn to that type of capacity because he's a hard worker. And we need to make space for that and have that be okay. We shouldn't look down our noses at somebody who has accumulated wealth because they've they've worked their asses off. There's a balance here. What we need to get away from is there being a discrepancy in the thousands on a multiplier effect between what the executive class makes and what the lowest worker makes in a company. Like the Kellogg's example. So Steve taking home $11 million in compensation and them doing an enormous stock buyback 
and then raising prices to increase profit margins only to come back to the workers and say, we need more from you. Well, that's why we need fucking unions. Here's my question to you. And this is in no way like a slight at Nathan, just thinking about what he's saying. So why would someone care if other people want to unionize if it makes if it makes them feel protected? So I think a lot of the ways that we interact with unions in our daily lives, we see some of the the abuses, the shitty teacher in the in the union that just is 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 a terrible tenure teacher that doesn't do a great job. They exist. The cop that literally beats the shit out of people has like 70 infractions in their file and just doesn't lose his or her job. Like there are protections that are overwrought. And I think it leads to, you know, this antipathy towards protections when people break societal norms. But again, those are the outliers in my mind. Those are the outliers. And unions are not a perfect system. This is one of those issues where it's like, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. Nathan makes great points about an idea that I think a lot of unions struggle with, which is meritocracy. So that exceptional, exceptional, extraordinary teacher that gets the same benefits and the same wage, the same time off and the same pension as the horrible, horrible teacher. That My ninth grade around. math teacher. You're specifically talking about him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's when that's when I think when we interact with these things and we look at it, we're like, oh, yeah, that fucking guy, you know, he just oh, he just why does he deserve that? But I think that the members, that's up to them. That's not up to us. That's the bottom line. It's up to them to work that out. It's up to us to create the guidelines and clear the path for them to be able to determine how a meritocracy might work within the union structure. And just one last point that Nathan makes, um, again, because I think that the way he laid out his, uh, it's not even an argument. It's really just laying out questions and scenarios, real life scenarios within industries and the industry that he works in. He talks about free enterprise. He agrees with our points about Milton Friedman, but, quote, does not believe that employees do not have a voice without a union. Our company does have unionized employees, and our employees have never asked for a vote. And we have over 250,000 employees. Our employees vote with their feet. When they're unhappy with our policy salaries, they quit and work elsewhere. So, yeah, this is why these type of industries are not unionized, is because there is great mobility of the upper classes and management classes in these type of industries. Right now, there's actually great mobility right down to the teller level in banking. But the, the bottom line is, it is a transferable skill set that is highly valued in our society because it's part of finance. But when you need food to get to your table and that food comes from a plant with horrendous working conditions and people that are literally working could be 18-hour shifts just standing on their feet and being abused and not being able to sit down in an Amazon facility and pissing in a bottle, which is true no matter how much they want to say that it's not. Accidents happening on the roadways because a driver was asked to do three, four back-to-back shifts. Like, that's the kind of stuff that's looking to be protected. But there's another point that I want to make here about the who, who we're talking about here. Because if you look at the bottom rung in the banking world that has, and it does, it employs a tremendous amount of people across the world. If you look at that bottom rung, about 60% of that class are white. Now let's go all the way up to the executive level. This is according to EEOC and, and Bureau of Labor Statistics. If you go all the way to the top rung, the representation of white people is 86%. So even at the lowest level, 60% of the roles are filled by white people. 
But at the highest levels, the ones that are most transferable, the ones where people are voting with their feet, I'm not going to work at this bank. My team and I are going to go to this bank and we're going to make that much more money and get a signing bonus and so on and so forth. 86% of them are white. And most of the decision making in the board level and at the executive teams are, of course, white men. So when we're talking about the ability to vote with your feet in the finance industry, that exists. It is very real, but it's still more real for a certain subset of the population than it is for others. Again, we're not talking about that. We're talking about the bulk of the worker industries where you're putting in at a long day's work and not getting the protections that you need. It all also, it really boils down to privilege. Are you a privileged person? And are you able to vote with your feet? A lot of these people can't, they can't, they can't get another job. Mobility is not an option for most people. Yeah. And, you know, there's so many circumstances that go into it. If you're working an 18 hour shift at Amazon, when are you applying to jobs? When are you going to apply to jobs? When are you working on your resume? When do you have time to interview if you can't take a day off? If you can't take a day off because you're sick, if you can't take a day off for that, if you can't take a day off because of your kids, how are you going to take a day off and interview somewhere? It's almost like cult indoctrination where they get you real tired. You know, you work. They take you out of your normal circumstances. They don't feed you right. So you're weakened and you're almost just subservient. So when you say, I can just go somewhere if I'm unhappy, you have to look at your surroundings and say, well, OK, can everyone do that? Can they just leave and go somewhere else? Or you if know you what work I mean? at a supermarket and that's just what you do. Yeah. And you could work in data analytics for a supermarket. You could stock the shelves. But if in the town that you live in, there's one supermarket, that's who you're working for. To vote with your feet with that type of company means you're leaving town. And that's, you know, for a lot of people, it's just not an option. Yeah. That's why towns die. mm -hmm. If you don't have, if you don't have a car, let's say your only method of transportation is the bus and this bus stops here and the next bus stop is, you know, a mile away or an hour away. And so you can only work in this immediate vicinity. What are you going to do if it's between feeding your family? Privilege comes into play a lot here. I mean, that's why it's sort of become a pejorative, but check your privilege is a thing because you forget. You see your surroundings, but you have to stop and look bird's eye view at what's happening for other people who who don't look like you, people who aren't naturalized citizens. What's their situation like? Most places, are they going to allow them to work there? What if they don't have papers? Who's hiring them? What rights do they have based on the system we currently have? Yeah. And the last point that Nathan makes is also a good one because it makes you think about what we value in our economy. It says Kellogg's doesn't sell anything that's a necessity. It's not a utility. We state ourselves sugary cereal and Cheez-Its. No one must buy this junk food. At the end of the day, the consumer has a voice in this price increase. Again, the consumer could just simply opt to have different food, except no, they don't. Kellogg's wasn't the only one to get ahead of price increases to do it before there were any perceived, what did Steve call it? The right to take price. They they declared the right to take price before there were any other inflation pressures or perceived supply chain issues. He admitted as much, but they weren't the only ones. Unilever did it. General Mills did it. And now just with those three examples, there are more by the way, but let's take Unilever, General Mills and Kellogg's and now go to a rural community that does not have a Whole Foods or a Trader Joe's, that does not have any sort of small little local organic market or farm stands or anything like that, that is a anywhere between food desert to just I have to shop at Walmart because that's the only fucking thing in my town. 
and eliminate all of the Unilever products, all of the General Mills products, and all of the Kellogg's products. And now you tell me what you're eating. That's the problem here. That for most people, that's not an exaggeration. We're talking the vast majority of this country. This is their sustenance. These sugary fucking bullshit cereals, because these are the companies with their multi-billion dollar profits that have the ability to buy more ads than the others to say they're great, except that they're not great for you. And that's why we have childhood obesity. That's why we have higher diabetes incidents than the rest of the developed world. That's why we have milk jammed with hormones and antibiotics that are creating issues in children and grownups forcing kids into puberty as early as six and seven years old. We have serious issues in the food supply and those companies have the advertising dollars to tell people that that's not actually what's happening to them. And that's a whole other thing that we'll touch on in our veganism episode, of course. But the bottom line is that this is how people eat. This is their only option. And Nathan ends where I like to end all of these type of correspondences and probably a good way to send us into the new year because I'm extremely grateful for how he approaches us and how all unfuckers approach conversations and discourse in this pod. Says, I hope this note is taken in the spirit of meeting me where I am, as I know you will disagree with some of this, but I listen to your podcast because I really do believe in the principle of supporting people less fortunate than myself and that our current government system is broken. Yeah, I'm, I'm meeting you right where you are. Because I'm also privileged enough to live in this same type of area of the world and at the same echelon of our culture and our economy where I have options. Way more options as a white guy in the world than most everybody else. And I've been given more opportunities throughout my life to fuck up and build myself back. So I know what that looks like. And I also know that because of those opportunities to build myself back, I'm very aware of my own privilege to say that it wasn't just me working my ass off. It was the people around me giving me the grace and the latitude to be able to work myself into success in different areas. I'm meeting you where you are because you are sending in what's on everybody's mind. You're speaking the stuff that most people are thinking about when they hear about labor unions in this country. And that is fair because we have been indoctrinated to loathe the working class. And Nathan, I know you don't. I know that you do support people that are less fortunate. But you also possess that American ethic of, hey, if I work my ass off, I want to be rewarded for that. And that is also okay. And we have to allow the grace for both of these things to be true in our society. But our public officials just don't seem to think so. Anyway, I know that that was really long, but I think that what Nathan was bringing to the table was so on point that I just wanted to hit all of them. So thank you for sending that in. Thank you to all the unfuckers for indulging me. As always... Unfucking the Republic is edited and arranged by Manny Faces Media. Happy New Year, everyone. I got something for you at the end. Stick around. The show is lovingly produced by the great and powerful 99. Happy belated Hanukkah. You too. Thank you. <laughs> Our theme music was composed by Tom McGovern. Visit TomMcGovern.com. The show is hosted by Delta and distributed by Omicron. Send us your comments, your questions, your suggestions to UNFTRPod at gmail. And you know the rest. Thank you, unfuckers, subfuckers, uncanuckers, down under fuckers, euro fuckers, pitch fuckers, pack fuckers, bottle fuckers, plant fuckers. Thank you, everybody, for giving us a wonderful year. We'll see you in 2022. And that's the real danger.
But as I mentioned, I'm trying to stay positive here. So here's the upshot. Shit. Corporations taking record profits? Fuck me. Robert C. said, how can we say the Democrat... How can we say the demo- Democratic? That's a, what's, that's a word I don't know, apparently. That for most people, and, I'm, and that's not a generalization. That's not, and that's, that is a generalization. It's exactly a generalization. Mm-hmm. Should we count down to New Year right now? <laughs> if you start the show at whatever, whatever, at this time you'll be listening to Unfuck Me Republic in 2022. Uh-huh.